Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, my name is Harold Furch Scott Roth. I'll be your moderator. Uh, our guest today needs no introduction. Uh, Richard Wiley is, he is the Dean of Federal Communications Law. He is the most widely recognized communications lawyer in the world. Uh, he uh, is former chairman of the FCC. He founded a firm that bears his name. Uh, he has been recognized as the greatest communications lawyer in the galaxy. So um, <laughs> that's very kind. Thank you, Harold. We're uh, a little over the top, but thank you. <laughs> just a little. No, not even that. Um, so we're very, uh, very honored to have you here today. Nice to be back with Hudson Institute. And we're just going to have a Q&A format. I'm going to ask a whole bunch of questions. And uh, then we'll open up to the floor for, for further questions. And for our online audience, uh, you can send questions to what shall we what shall we call it today? Hudson Event. So uh, send your questions into Hudson Event, and we'll we get those taken care of. Uh, Dick, is it all right if I call you Dick? Absolutely. Uh, Only my mother called me Richard. Believe me. <laughs> Uh, you um, have the rare distinction of having been the only FCC chairman appointed by both a Republican and a Democrat president. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I had been at the commission for about six years <clears throat> and when, uh, I don't know whether you remember the election of November of 1976, but Jimmy Carter beat Jerry Ford. And uh, so I assumed that I would be moving on. And I decided to tell the Carter transition team that my term ran out the following June, and I was going to continue to serve my term. I was going to finish it. I wanted to do that. And uh, so I, went, I told that to the Carter transition head. And he said, you know, I'm a Kansas public broadcaster. I'm familiar with your record. If you're going to stay, why don't you just remain as chairman, to my great surprise? And I said, well, I can do that, you know? And so I, I went back to the FCC, and I got together with the three Democrats. We had seven members at that time, and they were all friends of mine. And I said, guys, <clears throat> you're looking at the next chairman of the FCC. And there was a few grumbles and, and what have you, but uh, ultimately uh, I got some handshakes, and, and I remained. So everything was going good, and I... I was just operating as I'd always operated. <clears throat> I got to know the Carter uh, people at the White House, and we traveled internationally to some uh, some uh, meetings abroad. And uh, June came. I got a call. I said, well, this is it this time. And I told my wife. And uh, <clears throat> I went over, and they took me to see the tennis courts. They knew I was a tennis player. And then they took me to the Oval Office. Jimmy Carter was away that day. And uh, I wondered what was happening. And finally, they took me to lunch and said, hey, could you stay some more? Could you stay till Labor Day? And it turned out to be just about a year from the time that uh, Ford lost that election that finally I was replaced. Uh, it, was a, it was a good experience for me. I, I did get to know all those people over there. When I went back into private practice, it was uh, a good experience. I even ended up hiring 
one one person from the uh, staff, <clears throat> a fellow named Rick Neustadt, whose father was a famous Harvard uh, professor of history, and uh, I liked the job. That's why I remained. So it was it was a, it was a decent experience for me. What were the differences between the Carter White House and the <clears throat> Ford White House? Well, actually, the, the, the unusual situation was that uh, Ford and Carter had largely the same positions, uh, pro-competitive and uh, moderately deregulatory for the, t for the time in the 70s. And that's certainly the policies I had, so I didn't really have to change any of the things that I was doing. Uh, it really uh, was, was a good a good experience. And one thing I found out is when Carter came in, he changed our salary from forty to $50,000. And I said, hmm, not so bad to be a Democrat for, for a short time. <laughs> uh, but uh, Senator McClellan told me that, boy, we're going to reappoint you. And I decided that was one step too far. Uh, my wife wanted me to get out and, and get a job uh, in the private sector. And also, I, did, I felt... I was a Republican. I wanted to stay a Republican. What was it like? Were there any big differences in having seven commissioners versus five? You know, it was a different era then. And so, you know, my view is that I wanted to involve the other commissioners and, uh, uh, and, and try to get their support for, for uh, what I was attempting to do. And so I had to... You know, I walked the hall a lot, got to know them, got to know their staffs, knew what they were interested in. Uh, it was a little bit more uh, awkward because you had a lot of people to see. But uh, I started a, a series of rotating dinners uh, at each commissioner's homes. It started with my home, and then we went around. And it's a little harder to uh, curse out the chairman on Monday morning when you've been having dinner with him and his wife on Saturday night. So. I think those kinds of things built cohesion and built relationships within the commission, and I think it's a good thing. A little harder today because, you know, obviously, we have a partisan divide that we didn't have in, in, in as much uh, in the Ford-Carter era. Were the, uh, tell us, I'm just thinking whether that would be possible today. Uh, were the sunshine rules... When did the sunshine rules come into place? It, it came in mid-year, of, 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 of mid-term for me. Uh, so I had experience before the sunshine law and after the sunshine law. You know, my view is that the statute was very well intended. You wanted to have transparency. It made a lot of sense. But I'm not sure that it has all worked out uh, as, uh, the, as, as the drafters would have hoped. <clears throat> because I think what's happened is the... The meetings have become very scripted, uh, and um, in, instead we used to have uh, sessions in which, in, in my office, in which we kind of narrowed the differences. We, we talked to each other, uh, had a relationship with each other, understood where the other commissioners were coming from, and I think you can't have that, obviously, today. Uh, so I, I think uh, the law could use some amendment. I think it would be difficult to get it through because it sounds like you're against transparency. Um, I'd, I'd like to see some a possibility of, of non-decisional meetings, at least, between some of the commissioners. Obviously, the meetings of their staffs is very helpful, but it's not the same thing as people uh, who have the vote coming together and talking to one another about their 
concerns and their differences. Now what we get is uh, we, we see their independent statements coming out after the deed is done. And you know, I think it's, I think it's uh, not as effective as it, it should be. So I had it before and I had it after. Yes, I, and my understanding is that at one time, while you were there, uh, there wasn't nearly the backlog of items that there are, is today and that uh, a lot of decisions got made at, uh, at a public meeting and uh, whereas today things can languish for, for years or decades. Well, actually, we did have backlogs, and that's one of the things that I was a hawk on. Uh, when I've, I, I've been general counsel, I've been commissioner, so I really knew the commission when I got to be chairman. Uh, I was very fortunate to have the three best jobs at the commission in my 30s, uh, in case you're counting. And uh, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, I kind of, I remember the first week I was chairman, I asked each of the bureau chiefs to come in and identify for me every item that was a year old in their, in their, uh, down in the bureau. And I, I said, I'm gonna put out uh, a three month calendar in advance. So when can you get this item up? And I'd say, can you do it in next June? And they said, oh no, we can't get it, we can do, how about July? I'd finally get them set for September. And then we'd have it, and then I'd put that out and sort of lock everybody in. Now, in those days, Harold, we didn't have meetings once a week, once a month. We had meetings three times a week. I told the commissioners, Monday and Friday are yours. If you want to make speeches and go someplace, that's fine. I, I want you Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday here. So we had shorter meetings, probably uh, more focused, sometimes just on one big item or something like that. And in those days, I'll give you an example of a backlog that was a concern to me, and that was uh, we used to have what are called petitions that deny broadcast licenses. Licenses then were three years as compared to what they are today, and people could file against the, the license. Now you've got sort of a built-in statutory uh, uh, presumption of, of, of continuance, and so we had stacked up 250, 300 uh, petitions denied that had been ruled on, and sometimes they'd go through the, th the following three years that still hadn't been ruled on. So I start established a, a, a petition to deny day, and we'd take up 25 of them uh, at, a, at, a, at a, a time. And I'd always make sure there were a couple there that, were, that had problems so that it didn't seem like just a routine operation. And within a, a year or so, we were able to clean that backlog up. So I do think the importance of moving paper uh, at the commission uh, is, is something essential. And I think the current commission operates, I think, very effectively. I think Chairman Pai, whether you agree or disagree with certain views uh, that he may have, uh, is operating a very efficient commission. And, uh, and I think getting things done, which is, which is good. How did, over the years, there are new technologies that come before the commission? Uh, new satellite programs, new cable services, new wireless services, new types of equipment. Um, how has the commission handled new technologies over time? And what, what processes of handling new technologies work and which ones don't? Well, you know, it, it, it's a difficult thing for the FCC. It's a small organization and, and, and technology moves so rapidly today. Uh, <clears throat> and so, 
an example would be uh, we had notices of inquiry where we, uh, you know, put out and try to gather information before we started the notice of proposed rulemaking. And that educated the commission. The problem with it is it slowed everything down because notice of inquiry would take a year and then you notice of proposed rulemaking take another year. And so sometimes it wasn't as effective. In the case of uh, digital high-definition television, uh, the commission started an advisory committee, which this is long after I had left the commission. In 1987, Chairman Patrick called me in and said, would you be willing to, to take on a two-year project to help uh, the commission uh, develop uh, advanced television, as it was called? It, it was being uh, research and development was going on in, in Japan and Europe and Congress and the FCC were concerned about falling behind in this important technology. So they set up an advisory committee and the two years turned into nine years for me and it was pro bono and about 15 or 20 percent of my time but it was a great great experience. I'd have to say Harold it was probably the most rewarding experience I'd ever had and there they sort of out the commission worked with my advisory committee which was made up of 25 of the leaders of our major broadcast cable set manufacturing and later computer companies, but we had over a thousand volunteers working on it. So there are different ways to get up to speed, I think, on, on the commission. Uh, I, I think today's commission is so much more challenged than it was in my day. That's the big difference I see is because you've got so many new technologies the industry structure is so much more complex than it was. I mean, we had AT&T, Western Union, if you'll remember them, and the broadcast industry. But then starting in the, in the middle 70s, cable started to come in, satellite, and all the rest of it. Today, the technologies are mind-boggling, and I think the commission has a very good staff in that. Uh, uh, I think the Office of, of Engineering and Technology does a terrific job. I think Chairman Pai, I came here to this room and listened to him uh, when he announced the economic, uh, new economic uh, division that he set up. I think that was a good step because we've had a good general counsel's office, a good engineering department now of the economy, and I think that's very good. So there are a variety of ways in which the commission can try to, to learn, but it's, it, it's difficult for, for a small agency because the technology is unbelievable. And look, HDTV, widescreen, tremendous development for the country. But look, the technology that we were dealing with and developed is 25 years old now. So we've got next-gen TV so quickly on the scene, but it's an IP-based standard, something that you never have thought about in, the, in, in 1987 when we were working on this. And it, it gives the possibilities of a much better reception for mobile and handheld, which is not what we were focusing on. We were focusing on widescreen, de high-definition television. And that was terrific, and I love it in my home, and you probably do in yours. But I think the new, the new uh, technology, the new standard, which the commission has just adopted on a voluntary basis, is going to bring many, many more services. Uh, I think we'll be including targeted content and advertising and emergency warnings and uh, all the rest, data distribution. You, you mentioned that you had daily meetings. Uh, were there 
more how how have the dynamics among the commissioners and the chairman changed over time well you know when i was there uh, the president made the minority appointments he really made them uh it, it and so you know, I, I actually talked to all the people who were coming on, Republican and Democrat. Uh, and there were a number of changes that were made in, in my, just during the three or four years that I was chairman. Today, as we all know, the minority appointments are not made by the president. Uh, the Democrats today are going to be made by the Hill, by Senator Schumer. And the same thing was true with Mitch McConnell. And we're getting very highly qualified people. Uh, let me make that clear. I mean, it is the people who come from the Hill, all these folks are from the Hill, because uh, they, they, but they all come to the commission with the ties with the Hill, and so they tend to have sort of political viewpoints, and I think that makes the agencies, not just the FCC, but all the regulatory agencies, sort of little congresses. Uh, so it's sort of, you got your Republicans, you got your Democrats, three and two. In uh, my day, I'd have to say some of the, the Democratic uh, commissioners were to the right of me, probably. I mean, Jim Quella was a broadcaster appointed, and he served 23 years, appointed by four Republican presidents. Glenn Robinson was a history, uh, a, excuse me, a law professor at the University of Virginia. He was a libertarian. When I started proposing uh, educational informational programming for children that broadcasters ought to do that. He thought that's something that the commission shouldn't get into. So he was over there a little bit to me. So the, the, the appointment process wasn't perfect then either because maybe you got too much homogeneity, sameness. Everybody, we all thought the same thing. That's clearly not true today, but we do get, I think, a more uh, political politicization of these issues. And it, you know, when you think about it, the FCC issues aren't inherently partisan, I don't think. Maybe I'm being naive in that regard, but I don't think it's necessarily that they have to be that way. But uh, I will say this, I think, and I'm not gilding the lily here, Harold, but I think we've got probably as competent an FCC as I've seen in all the years I've been there. Uh, every one of those commissioners uh, whether they're Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, but they have strong viewpoints. They're, they work like uh, dogs because there's the technology and the, the demands of the job is, is so overwhelming. And uh, their expertise, you know, is really beyond, I think, what we had when I was there. But, Harold, you would have a hard time getting on the commission today because you came from the House. Uh, primarily Senate staff people. Right or, yeah, or people sure. who the who this the, the the Senate uh, knows well now. In this case, I think the rumor is that the new person will be appointed from the FCC staff, but ties from the Congressional Black Caucus. So if you look at every one of the commissioners, they've got a tie to the to the Hill, except for Brendan Carr, who is of course close is a majority and he's close to the to the chairman. But, you know, Congress is the people's representatives. And uh, uh, so uh, they should have an important role, I think, in these agencies. But uh, I would like to see uh, the commissioners work together uh, more effectively. Yeah, I have to say, uh, it's been a few years since I was on the commission, but 
outside of some media issues. I don't think there were any. Everything else was completely nonpartisan. You, you couldn't, if you said there's a telephone issue or there's a cable issue, there wouldn't be any obvious side of for any commissioner on that. Whereas today, unfortunately, a lot of times it seems to be a predictable partisan divide on just about every issue. It seems that way, but if you look at it, they, they do have, they do get together on the basics of a lot of important issues. I mean, if you look at auctions, I mean, yeah. I think they, they, they may have had differences of some of the, the situation, but they, they generally agreed on the major principles. It's true on spectrum, uh, the 5G uh, development. Uh, yes, there's differences on local, local deployment and all the rest of it, but a lot of fundamentals, there's agreement. And, and you know, I think the chairman just needs to, uh, will and continue, all chairmen need to continue to work with their colleagues. I remember giving advice to one of my successors, and he was railing about the fact that he didn't care for the commissioners that he had. And I said, uh, I won't mention the name, but I said, these are the only commissioners you're ever going to have. So you might as well try to make every effort to get along with them. And certainly that was one of the strengths that I had is to try to do that. And, uh, and I think, I'm, I'm sure Tom Wheeler and Ajit Pai both are in their own ways have tried to do that. I'm sure every chairman probably has. Um, <clears throat> what has the role of the White House been, and how has that changed over time? You mentioned about the, the Ford and the Carter White Houses, but uh, what about the subsequent White Houses relative to the FCC? You know, uh, with a, com a couple of exceptions that I can think of, <clears throat> Ronald Reagan and FinCEN, the financial interest and syndication rule, which Charlton Heston came in and convinced him to go against the conservative chairman, Mark Fowler, uh, and keep those rules. And maybe whoever from Silicon Valley or whatever may have convinced uh, President Obama to uh, go Title II. I think largely speaking, I just use those as examples, whether they're, they're apocryphal or not, uh, I think largely the influence of the White House is generally overstated. I was there during uh, what some people would regard the bad old days, uh, you know, the Nixon administration. So it's allegedly the Washington Post, the commission was after the Washington Post owning stations. I can tell you, I never got a call on that. And as a matter of fact, I never got a call on anything on the White House. I was beginning to wonder what was wrong because nobody ever, ever called me. <clears throat> and I can tell you, on the, in the case of the Washington Post, John Dingell uh, sent affidavits out. We all had to fill out affidavits. I filled one out easily because no one had ever talked to me about that and, or anything else. So I think largely the, the uh, independence of the commission is respected, uh, I think. Now, there may have been certain chairmen that had very close ties uh, to the commission, uh, and to the White House, and which I didn't have. I was from Illinois. By the way, I probably wouldn't have gotten a chance to serve today because I was just an Illinois uh, uh, antitrust lawyer, wanted to go to the Federal Trade Commission, and uh, uh, the White House said, <clears throat> they've got a position they wanted to fill. Would I like to go over to the FCC? And I said, uh, Federal Communications Commission. So <clears throat> I had no background in that field at all. But, you know, so, so I think Reed Hunt, <clears throat> excuse me, had particularly close ties over that commission. 
over the White House, and, which I didn't have. So, but other than that, I think generally speaking, uh, the White House does not get involved in the commission. How has the role of non-chairman commissioners changed over time? Uh, I think the uh, commissioners today <clears throat> feel inclined to put out a statement on every item that the commission adopts. And, <clears throat> you know, I think, it's it, frankly, as a lobbyist, it's, it's very helpful. As one who's interested in everything the commission does and sometimes interacts with the commission, I find them very impressive, very useful. I understand where they're coming from. But it probably, in some instances, tends to emphasize differences more than agreement uh, because they all have individual things that are going to focus on. And yes, I'm generally with the, the, the chairman on this, but I think the way we did it wasn't quite right, and all the rest of it. So uh, you do see, I, in, in my day, <clears throat> it was seldom that we had indep independent statements put out by the commissioners. And since I was generally in the majority, I didn't put them out uh, very often. So there wasn't that kind of information around. Today, I think it's, it's, it's very helpful uh, to see where people are coming from. And, and, you know, so that, that'd be my position. You've seen lobbying at the FCC from both sides, and you've seen it over a period of years. How, how has advocacy at the FCC changed? Well, I think, you know, I think it, it's certainly improved in the sense that uh, the commission has rules now on ex-party statements. I give some credit to... Uh, some of the uh, public interest groups have suggested that everybody has to put in an ex-party statement on uh, permit but disclose items. I think it's helpful to know who's gone in. I'll, I'll be sitting in my office. I find out that Harold Furchgott Roth has been in trying to see the commission on the other side of an issue I'm in. And, it, it, and he's generally, I find out what he more or less said in there, and then I can decide whether I want to go in. I think that's good. Another rule is a 48-hour rule. If the staff is going to decide something, the other commissioners are supposed to be informed about that. I think that's all good. Another improvement, I think, is that the public interest groups, the community, uh, the uh, citizens groups, so to speak, are better funded today. Uh, I don't know who is funding them, but they have certainly are able to, I think, put together uh, folks that uh, and expertise that equals the industry's representation in many respects, and that's probably a good thing. Sometimes, if I were going to be critical, I think sometimes uh, people feel inclined to fight the last war, and so you end up with a newspaper broadcast rule being uh, still supported by people who should have realized that rule has long, I put that rule into effect when newspapers were dominant. Uh, and we were concerned about them, uh, you know, really superimposing their their views on on television and radio stations they might own. That's ridiculous today, and that rule should have been uh, abolished you know, 10, 15 years ago. But people got Im you know, imbued with it and, and had a tendency to, to uh, fight it. So uh, the other thing I think sometimes is, you know, this is true on both sides, is uh, I think the degree of enmity sometimes rises higher than it should, you know. I don't like to see people parking in 
Tom Wheeler's driveway and blocking him from going to work. I certainly don't like to see people making threats against somebody's life uh, like it happened with uh, Chairman Pai. I had some very contentious issues at the commission, but nothing like that ever happened, thank goodness. And I think it's way, way over the top. People ought to have the right to criticize FCC commissioners, disagree with them, uh, express their viewpoints in a free society with free speech, but making threats is, 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 is people have lost their uh, poise and, and their sensitivity, I think, in that type of situation. So I think lobbying generally, though, is much improved, and, uh, and, and you've got a, a balance. Why do you think we've had this kind of increased uh, uh, hostility and coarseness in uh, some of the advocacy uh, that wasn't around in your time or my time? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the network neutrality issue has really, I think, caused a lot of people to become very agitated. And uh, maybe that's had some effect. That has obviously been the one the one issue that has caused some of this. But uh, I, I can't say. I, I just I think it's I think it's unfortunate. Chairman Pai has initiated uh, some transparency rules to help make the commission process a little less opaque. Uh, could you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, I think that's really added to the uh, improving the, the, uh, the lobbying, if you will. I mean, the fact that we know what the, the uh, notice of proposed rulemaking is going to say, when that first he proposed that, I think some people thought, gee, that's kind of crazy, you know, and it's going uh, it's, it's to have the cake out there before it's really baked. And But it's really, I think, it, now we know when you go in there, you know what the issues are going to be, what the commission's really thinking about. You're not arguing something that's totally irrelevant. Uh, you, you know basically uh, you know, what the major posture is of, of issues. And I, I really have to applaud Chairman Pai. I, I, I think it's worked out extremely well, and it has added transparency to the government. Uh, and if, if we're talking about that for sunshine, that certainly is very much sunshine, I think, and uh, so I, I, I think it's a good, a good step forward. And, and I think having something every week, every month, I should say, because we did meet, as I say, a couple times a week, but every month like that, uh, where he's trying to modernize rules, things like that, I think, I think, he's, I think he's moving the commission. The Initial Communications Act was passed in 1934 minor amendments every year, major, major changes in the 96 Telecom Act. Um, is, the, is the law still working? Does it need to be changed? What do you think? Well, you know, I think the 1996 Act was really a, a major milestone. It had, had been worked on for a very long time on a bipartisan basis with a lot of interaction uh, between the Hill and the uh, industry and public interest community. Uh, I think it was an excellent act. It opened all markets to competition. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not one here to put it down. But the reality is it was a victim of its own chronology in the sense that, just think of it, 1996, 
It mentioned the internet, what, I don't know, three or four times. Broadband, probably not at all. I mean, it, it just happened to hit at a time when the technology was going to be going through a tremendous development with the internet, which is really the big thing that's changed our whole field more than anything else. Uh, so I, I'm with Chairman Walden on that. Uh, I remember coming to a Hudson Institute uh, event that you had, Harold, a few years ago with Chairman Walden, in which he was trying to talk about the development of new uh, legislation. Uh, and, and I'd be for what he said, uh, light touch uh, legislation with maybe sunsets for new rules. That was another idea that they had. Uh, so you wouldn't have a newspaper broadcast rule kicking around for 43 years beyond its, its uh, any kind of rationality. Um, but with the network neutrality uh, situation, with the partisan divide that we have today, uh, I think a new legislation is probably not going to happen, uh, a big major bill. So I think what we're likely to see more is smaller acts. Uh, for example, the Ray Baum Act that just was put through and which we got a lot of bipartisan support for, not just because it was named after a terrific individual that everybody knew, but because, you know, it dealt with spectrum repacking, uh, uh, dealt with uh, ideas of mobile now, finding new spectrum, possible new auctions. There are a lot of good things in that bill. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, I think it was a really good thing. And I think maybe we see more of that effort in which you could get bipartisan support uh, and, and have smaller bills. Uh, I would like to see the big comprehensive legislation. I'm still for that. I hope it, I hope it can come around maybe after the, the next election, uh, depending on, on the makeup of the Senate and the House, it would still be a possibility. But uh, I don't foresee it until the network neutrality uh, issue gets solved. And by the way, on that particular issue, and I don't mean to enter that thicket myself substantively, but I do think that there seems to be a lot of commonality an agreement on general principles of no blocking, no throttling. You do have some differences on paid prioritization, but it's something that can maybe be worked out in the legislative process. Uh, so at some point, it would be great if, if Congress could step in and solve that issue, and we don't have to have years and years of litigation and ping-ponging between Title I and Title II, and you know the next uh, administration, if it turns out to be Democrat or the Republican, go back to Title II. I don't think that's in the public interest to have it back and forth like that. So I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to see legislation if that were all possible. Otherwise, it, the courts will have to settle it. Uh, looking back on your career, uh, what were what were some of your greatest professional accomplishments, and what would you say were some of your greatest missed opportunities? Well, I, I mean, to have the th those three great jobs at the commission and to get to know the unsung heroes of the commission, and, and, and that is the career staff, because you know, as a young guy coming in there, as as a Republican, the first Republican on the scene as general counsel for some time, <clears throat> I had an all Democratic staff. I remember walking in the door for the first time at the FCC, a guy came out and said, I'm your only Republican 
uh, on the general counsel staff. I said, oh, great, that's, that's wonderful. Well, the, uh, the, the Democrats were, uh, that, that worked for me, they respected the elections uh, and the election results. And I think that's been generally true of, of the commission staff through the years. They're professionals and they do the job. So it was a great experience to be 35 years old and have that job, uh, you, know, uh, you know. And then within a year, I got called in one day from, by Chairman Birch and said, what are you doing about becoming a commissioner? I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm working as general counsel. Well, one of the commissioners is leaving, and if you don't get over the White House, you're, you're, going, to, uh, you're going to lose out. <clears throat> and so I went to the White House, and the White House said, well, uh, you know, there's a key person on this. It happens to be uh, a, a senator once you know, somebody very importantly, and it, it, we, we'd go with you, but this senator is very important. Well, it turned out to be Chuck Percy from Illinois, whom I knew very well. So I was able to make the sale, so to speak, and that when he got to be a commissioner. And then uh, it was just a matter of time till I, I got to be chairman. So that was a great experience. Then, finally, when they did come and get me in, in October, late October of 77, I went to Kirkland Ellis, which is a, was a terrific firm. I was from Chicago, uh, and I had five wonderful years with Kirkland Ellis, but I was the first victim of the Bell breakup because uh, the firm took one of the Bell spinoffs in Chicago, and at the time, prior to the 1996 Act, I was representing the newspaper industry and other companies, GTE and other companies on the other side, and so I, I had to leave, uh, uh, and so I, I left, and that's when we, st I st we started at Wiley Ryan in 1983. So 35 years of that firm has been a great experience for me, and I, I love that every minute of it. But uh, I'd have to say those nine years of pro bono working on the development of HDTV was probably, for me, the most rewarding experience I had, having a thousand people uh, to try to maneuver around and, and learn the technology and work with all these wonderful engineers who always try to find solutions on a peer review process. And uh, that, was, that was a really remarkable experience. And uh, I'd have to put that number one. And uh, all due respect to my partners and all due respect to my fellow colleagues at the FCC, uh, that was, for me just happened to be the, the top. Uh, of it all, but I've liked every job I've had. So uh, going back to even being a JAG officer when I first came to the FCC at the Pentagon, it's in the, to Washington at the Pentagon. Well, I've been monopolizing the questions. I'm gonna open it up to the floor for questions and also for our online uh, uh, audience to submit questions to uh, Hudson event. Questions from the audience? Gentleman in the back there. John Feroldi from Charter Communications. Um, my question is a philosophical one, and that is, do you see the FCC becoming more of a promoter of, of the future rather than a regulatory body? Well, I think the regulatory issues <clears throat> and their responsibilities on regulation are there under the statute. They have to process uh, licenses. They have to make those decisions. <clears throat> but I think they're trying very hard to stay current uh, with regulation, as indicated by 
by next-gen television, by 5G. I would think what they're doing there, you can, again, argue, you know, tribal lands or local uh, local uh, restrictions and all the rest. I'm not getting into that, but I think they're, they're trying to be cognizant of the future uh, of it, and I, I applaud them for that, but they still have to keep their their statutory responsibilities alive. And there are a lot of people, a lot of businesses with important public interest responsibilities or, or activities that they've got to make sure continue to operate effectively. So I think for a, an agency of 2,000 people, less than that, 1,700 now, it's a, they do a remarkable job. I say that under uh, Democratic and under Republican leadership. We, we, the government gets it gets its money's worth with the FCC through the years. I don't think that was true when I was there, but it clearly it has been in the last few administrations that I've seen. Next question, uh, gentlemen. Hi, Mike Jacobs, ITTA. Um, wondering what your views are on delegated authority, uh, how, it's, how it's being used now, what, what do you think the normative is, how you used it? You know, I think probably I had my views are a little different. I, I thought I, I'm the chairman, and I know the staff was going to, you know, be cognizant of my views and respectful of them. So, I was always thought it was great to have delegated authority, and uh, and and have things that weren't new and novel being done at the staff level. And I thought that was good. And if if there was a problem, it could come up to the eighth floor. So I remember when we had those backlogs, I called in Roy Stewart, who was one of the finest staffers I ever saw, and I said, Roy, get it done. If you have problems, bring it up to me. I'll make the decisions, but let's move the paper. And I know that some of the minority commissioners today are concerned that things are being done at the staff level that they don't, they don't get to, to know about. And I do think the 48-hour rule is a good one, as I said earlier. So, but I generally be for letting the expert staff decide things that don't rise to the level of the, of the commissioners. And uh, and certainly, as a as a lobbyist, as a lawyer before the commission, I spend most of my time off the eighth floor talking to the staff, and that's where a lot of the activities gets done. And you look at it, and there are people there that were there when I was there. They've been there all those years. Uh, you've got a really expert staff. Next question. Looking at the issues that are before the commission today, and, and take off, you know, any client interest here. What what do you think are the the main issues that the commission should be addressing? And uh, are they addressing them? Or are there some that you think they're just not? Uh, as focused on as it should be? Well, one of the things I think one of the great improvements, and I certainly didn't make it, was auctions. <clears throat> when we were there, we had comparative hearings. There was a license available, and you had these long, drawn-out fights between people, like little trials. That was clearly, you know, time-consuming, expensive, and not very productive. Then we went to lotteries, and that's where, you know, you spun the wheel, and people were trying to speed it up. Auctions puts the spectrum to its highest use. It gets it to the people who only want to have some use for it, and there are rules about that warehousing spectrum. And so I think the auction process has been terrific. You can argue whether the last auction, uh, the broadcast spectrum, was too complex 
or it just came at the wrong time. Clearly, it didn't produce the dollars that people wanted revenue-wise to the to the to the treasury. But it cleared 84 megahertz of, of spectrum. It was a big success, I think. And I think commission, both Republican and Democrats, want to see more of that. The Congress wants to see more of it. So it's one place where you can really see bipartisanship. The Congress wants it because they have revenue problems. And, 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 and again, there may be spectrum that can be uh, uh, repurposed. One of the things, the big challenge for the future will be federal government use of the spectrum. Uh, as an American, uh, I certainly don't want to see the Defense Department or, or, or any of our important safety uh, agencies uh, not to lose some of their spectrum they absolutely need. But there may be a way in which there can be sharing, greater sharing. There may be incentives by the federal government, this is what the FCC is working on, to try to give up some of the spectrum or share it w again with the, with the private sector. So I think that's, that's really, really important, I think. And then these new technology areas that I've already mentioned, uh, in the video area and the 5G, I think those, those are tremendous uh, new developments. Gentlemen here. Thank you, Mr. Wiley. And um, I have a question. You mentioned 5G. To what extent is the FCC going to get involved with uh, self-driving cars? With uh, cars? Yes. Well, I I think again, it's it's a question of of, uh, of whether or not you know the Internet of Things, if the spectrum is going to be there for those kinds of things, uh, and I think. I think that's one of the one of the developments that could come along. I don't think the FCC will be specifically involved. There'll be other agencies that'll be more important. But one of the things they've got to make sure is the spectrum is there and available for, for technologies like that. And I think that's what the commission is attempting to do. And you just think about it. I mean, we may have big monolithic, 100 foot, 200 foot towers that we've always had in 4G. In, in earlier generations, but this idea of small cells, uh, or you can have you can have them embedded in light poles and, and uh, on rooftops, uh, you know, is really I think magnificent development of technology. And and I've already talked about next gen TV. And with that, please join me in thanking Chairman Dick Wiley. Thank you.